Hello and thanks for tuning in. This is the radio ministry of Grace Community Church in Jefferson City, Missouri. Please open up your Bibles and join us. Here's Pastor Dennis Helton. If I were to ask if there is anyone amongst us who's ever had a time of hurt and pain and disappointment in a relationship that you had with someone, whether it be friends, family, what have you, there would undoubtedly be a lot of hands raised, I think. Could I be right on that? Possibly, right? We've all had probably our part in broken relationships, and uh, of course, nobody likes those at all. They don't enjoy those. Um, they're definitely uh, negative effects that go with that. And when relationships are broken, and when they're broken significantly, we want that relationship restored, don't we? We want it back to the way that it had been. So we can even grieve. We are saddened. We become sorrowed. Uh, matter of fact, if somebody has been overtaken by sin in their life and they might have offended us and the offense might be great, but at the same time, we know that it has offended the Lord much more. And that's really what it's about. We might have observed maybe a, a slippery slide down a slippery slope of sin and they fall headlong into disaster in, in their lives. And we pray that they would return back to where they need to be in their relationship uh, with the Lord. And, of course, definitely, you know, relationship with our own selves. But when one turns their back on the Lord, we mourn for that, don't we? We weep and we sorrow and we pray and we pray sincerely for their turning back. And what a Christian wants most is to see where there is repentance a true repentance, uh, to turn away from sin, turn to God. And that's what we desire most for the wanderer, isn't it? We truly desire that. We want God's will to be done in, in their lives. So repentance is a good thing. It's right, isn't it? It's biblical. It's a thing that must be done, but it's a difficult act to do. Repentance is hard. Matter of fact, it's impossible. It's impossible without the work of Christ in us, a true repentance. Repentance is granted to us by the Lord. It is a gift. Our natural heart does not want to repent. It can't. So we depend on the Lord for that. And as we've witnessed through the first six chapters and into chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, written by the Apostle Paul, we realize his circumstances. We, we realize what the people had done to him, and even more importantly, to the gospel. We know that Paul had been hurt. He felt the pain. He felt the broken relationship that was there. He had poured his life into these people, poured his love that overflowed into him from God himself. He had sent them a severe letter, a letter of warning, and he was beginning to regret it as he was um, kind of waiting for the news. He hadn't ran into Titus, who was going to meet the Corinthians, and then Titus was going to send back to him in person himself the news of what was happening in Corinth, Paul was really concerned. He didn't know how they were going to respond, and so he was regretting it to a, to a degree. And we'll get to that in a moment. But we know from our text last week, we already found the good news. As we ended that text, and it was in verse 7, in chapter 7, um, Titus came, said, hey, they accepted me. They welcomed me. Paul is going, yeah, yeah, <laughs> what about me, what about the letter? Titus says, good news, they repented. They are sorrowful for what they did to you, Paul, what they did to the gospel. Something happened. What happened? Repentance. The kind of repentance that actually is true. 
And it came from the sorrow that they had. Sorrow produces repentance. The sorrow that they'd seen, they recognized their sin. What a beautiful virtue it is, this repentance. Even though it sounds really negative, it sounds hard, but it is a true virtue. A commentator by the name of Denny said this, the apostle sets us an example here of the rarest and most difficult virtue. When he goes back upon the story of his relations with the Corinthians and makes the bitter stock yield sweet and wholesome fruit. And so that's what we're going to look at today. This is sweet, sweet fruit that comes out of this. So let's uh, stand for a moment. Get you to stretch yourself just for uh, just a bit. As you turn into Scripture, to the very Word of God, into your Bibles, chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. Paul has gotten the good news. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us what true repentance is. Sinners must repent. Christians must continue to repent. Confess the sins, for we ever have the battle the struggle. And you command us to mortify this sin, Lord. It starts with your conviction of your Holy Spirit and our understanding of what we've done against your holiness. Our self-righteousness offends you. And Lord, we desire then to turn from that and turn more and more to your truth. Thank you for the saving gospel, saving grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So, chapter 7, 2 Corinthians 8 through 10. And there's a word that sticks out a lot, and you're going to say it's repentance, right? Well, yeah, that's the main one. But also another word, sorrowful. Sorrowful. Paul wrote a sorrowful letter. The title of this message is Sorrowful to the Point of Repentance. Anyone can be sorry, but we're talking about a sorrow that leads to repentance. It starts with, uh, first of all, one who is not a believer, and he repents of his sin. And he sees that he's broken God's holy law, and he's dependent totally upon God's grace, He's depending on the faith that God grants him and the repentance that God grants him as he turns from his sin. And then it continues for that believer now. The believer continues to mourn for his sin. He battles it against it. He struggles. He wins. He's victorious. And then he loses some. We're told to confess our sins. Well, Paul here has this sorrowful letter, and actually the source of his comfort was Titus's report that the Corinthians had responded to the severe letter, and it was in a favorable way. And that just caused Paul to just nearly burst out with joy. That's what we see in verse 7 there. Uh, as uh, he says, and not only by Titus's coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. 
as he found out that they had uh, repented, confessed of their sin there. Uh, Paul's letter had uh, been written in the wake of a visit to the church there in Corinth. Somebody publicly insulted him, questioned his apostleship, wanted proof of his apostleship. Church sat by and did nothing. Said nothing, didn't support him, didn't do anything about it. And he issued a, a really a strong word of warning in chapter 13, verse 2, he says that. He says, I have previously said when present, the second time, when he was right with him face to face, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest of us as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. That was severe, wasn't it? The Apostle Paul, with his severe letter, and of course he spoke to them about that, uh, and now he has that severe letter that's been sent. He's really concerned about it. And uh, Titus comes. Uh, he demanded that an individual be rebuked in, in the church. Uh, individual challenged the authority. And he was actually to be, to be punished. Look back in chapter 2. Verse 2 says, uh, For if I cause you sorrow, see, as he's writing 2 Corinthians, he keep th keeps thinking about the sorrow that they probably have, and he, and he feels for them on that, in a sense. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one who I made sorrowful? That's the only way I can have joy from this whole sense of what's going on. This is the very thing I wrote to you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice. Having confidence in you all, in you all, okay, has a little bit of southern to him. You notice that? In you all, y'all. My joy would be the joy of y'all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful. It's not the point. But that you might know the love which I have especially for you. He made him sorry. And there is a sense that it's supposed to make him sorry. But at the same time, he's sorry that they're sorry. At the same time, he knows that that sorrow is good because it's going to lead them to repentance if they so go that way. Verse 5, But any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. So it's affecting the whole church. So he says, Sufficient for such a one as this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority. So they, they gave a discipline on this individual and of course that's how all this came out so Paul knew the letter was going to be harsh it was going to be very confrontational it was severe he confronted their sin he had anguish of uh, heart uh, pathos is what Paul has this is what he really feels this is part of him and so he still has to send these confrontational words. And there's a really hard look that he wants them to see what they were doing, what had been done. So as they would read it, it would cause them to shed tears, that they would be sorrowful, that there would be regret. But he didn't want them to be regretting it if they would confess their sins. He didn't want that to go on long. So, though I sorrow by my letter. And the tense is imperfect there. That means he kept on sorrowing. This went on for days and weeks and months. Just like parents. And they struggle over how severely a, a child has turned uh, against things that are of truth. And they have to punish them. You know, the old deal like, Hey, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. We all remember hearing that, and we probably as parents have said that. And it's so true, isn't it? Well, just think of that and think of how Paul feels here. Like they are the children of the, of the faith. They're his children in that sense, and that he's the one who gave the gospel to them as they were brought to Christ. You know, God did this with his children, the children of Israel. He repeatedly 
faced challenges of discipline and punishment to his people. He said in Hosea 11, 8 and 9, How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? You know, it's like he's regretting, he's sorrowing that, but yet he has to bring this on for them to be brought to repentance. It's called a tough love, isn't it? It's a discipline that's true. We must do that. So Paul went through this struggle, this severe letter. So his, you know, the response here is that, uh, you know, there's a regret in a sense because we look at back to chapter 7. Verse 8 says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. (laughs) Do you see what he's saying there? I don't regret because it had to be done. But I regret it for the fact that it's causing so much sorrow. See how he feels for them? Still yet, he has to get the truth there. I think that's loving and truth, isn't it? For I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. That's the whole thing. So in that sense, he doesn't regret it. It was only for a while. Um, He didn't write it to make them sad. doesn't want to make people sad. But he wrote to make them be brought to repentance. And also that they would know truth. They would act upon the truth. That's what he's motivated by, the truth and his love, right? He's motivated motivated by the very love of God that's in him. Sadness is a part of repentance, isn't it? Sad to say. <laughs> that's part of it. It is part. Um, writing that letter did not bring Paul pleasure. You've you got to think, well, this is the Apostle Paul, and i got a feeling sometimes he really gets really into this, you know, just getting on to people, especially with Corinthians. <laughs> We have two letters that we get to read. There weren't a lot of favorable things in those two letters, were there? Didn't get any pleasure out of it at all. You see, it caused him sorrow because they were sorry. But he brought them to repentance, and that is the purpose of sorrow, to bring them to repentance. Uh, We go to verse 9 now. I now rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful. I'm not rejoicing over that, even though it had to happen. I'm not rejoicing about that. But that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you are made sorrowful according to the will of God. Kind of go hand in hand. Verse 9 there. The presence of the godly sorrow. That's the thing in which Paul rejoices. What is godly sorrow? That's what we want, right? We want to get... To the point of godly sorrow. The sinner is conscious of his sin. He's very well aware of it. But not only conscious of his sin. But his consciousness of his sin being before the very presence of God. The very holiness of God has been offended. That's godly sorrow. Sorrow according to God. Is the literal thought there. Consciousness. Our sin is a sin, and it relates to God, the Holy One. Now, that brings it into perspective now. We're not just sorry because I did something, because I got caught, because I don't feel good about it. But we're sorry because, first of all, it offends the Holy One. And what that does, we find our loss in communing with God. It's not that we're out of the fellowship of God. We're not out of the family of God in that sense. But in another sense, we now have lost that joy of the fellowship with God by the Holy Spirit till we see that and recognize it as for what it is. It's an experience that is related to God. That's where it starts. It's not just about offending other people, even though it me, or because I feel bad about it, but it's because it grieves the Holy Spirit. It can be self-consuming. But actually, what the sorrow can do is heal us. It can give us a hopeful sorrow because we know the very grace of God and His mercy. So the consciousness of sin 
plays a great deal in our godly sorrow. God's hand was evident there in Corinth, wasn't it? How God made that move. Don't you know that Paul prayed every day for that? They had become sorrowful just the way that God intended it. Did you know God used Paul to write that letter and uh, to them that we don't have? He wrote a couple other letters that we, we don't have in, in Scripture. They're not inspired. They're called the lost letters. But these are the two letters that we have that are being here. And uh, there's a reason for that. But God worked through Paul to make an impact on the Corinthians there. And it worked. The power of God does that, doesn't he? And he granted them repentance. Um, NIV, which I usually don't use or anything, and I didn't on this, but somebody uh, used it in their commentary. And I go, oh, okay, that's literally the meaning of this. It says, they became sorrowful as God intended. And that's probably a really good translation. Just as God intended. You know, it's it's possible for a person to feel, I'm a sinner, and not necessarily have godly sorrow. Oh, I've sinned. Oh, I hate this. And still not have a godly sorrow. And say, what does it take? This is what I need. Well, if you were to start with unbelievers, go back to Adam and Eve. They had two sons to start with. Cain and Abel. Remember what Cain did? He went out to be a vagabond. He of course, proved who he really was and he murdered his brother, Abel. He was affected by the penal consequences of his sin as he was put out there. He was given a mark. There was a protection. But at the same time, can you imagine? He is now away from God. He was affected by this consequence. I'm sure he was a very bitter man in a lot of ways. Don't get a lot of more, any kind of news much on Cain after that. There was never any evidence of a changed life, was there? Abel, on the other hand, was one who had faith, Hebrews 11 says. But he was affected. He was affected because of the punishment of sin. Life was never changed. There was no godly sorrow. King Saul... Another man who had some sort of a repentance, but there really wasn't a godly sorrow. It wasn't a true repentance. He fell on his sword. There was Ahithophel who was a counselor for King David. As King David was being rebelled against, Ahithophel turned against David, went to the other side. He wound up seeing what was really going on in this, and he, too, took his life. That's a picture of what Judas did also. As he had a sorrow, he had a repentance. It was a worldly sorrow, but it didn't produce life. It produced death. He, too, went out and plunged headlong to his own death. It was not the sorrow according to God. And then you think of someone like Peter who denied the Lord and we see that Christ had prayed for him as he was sifted like wheat. He denied the Lord. But there's a true repentance in Peter. And he wept. He wept bitterly. For he had seen what he had done as he looked at the Lord. The Lord looked at him. Doesn't seem like a lot of difference. There's sorrow there, but there's a huge difference. And it means eternal life. Are you really sorry for your sins that offended the Holy One? It's about him. The kind of sorrow that God intends results in a change of heart, doesn't it? And that's for the unbeliever. That's the invitation. That's the message. John the Baptist says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus says, Repent, 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the church, the very early church, right from the very outset, to repent. And, of course, they were invited to repent. God granted repentance to the Gentiles as he had granted repentance to the Jews. It's there. Everyone, everywhere is commanded to repent. That's the message. And a true repentance, the heart changes. The Corinthians did not merely regret and have sorrow for what they did, but they repented as it says in verse 9, metanoia is our Greek word. It means to change the mind, noia, news, thinking, to change, change your mind, to change your thinking, to change your life, because your whole thinking is what your, your mindset is, is what your life is about. How do you think? What kind of worldview do you have? You either, either have a worldview that the world has, or you have a worldview that the Bible says. Do you have a biblical worldview? Yeah. Do you take everything at the angle of what this says? And you conform your thinking to that. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind by the very Word of God. That transforms us. We start thinking the way that God wants us to think. So if we're not in the Word of God very much. We're not going to be thinking the way that God thinks and the way that He intends for us to think. By the way, if you don't have the Word of God, the Spirit of God is going to be kind of silent too because the two go hand in hand. And so the Spirit may not even convict you. He's there if you're a Christian. And He is convicting, but you don't have the Word of God to interpret. You may not even feel that sin. You don't have any remorse for it. You don't even know it's sin sometimes. So we must be in the Word of God, being led by the Word, being led by the Spirit, so that we have our thinking changed. Um, Involves a recognition that a wrong has been committed. Corinthians were confronted. They remorsed. But repentance goes much further than the remorse. It went much further. It seeks to rectify it, to make it right. They admitted their blame. They punished the offender that was there in Corinth finally. You know, it's only natural to experience pain and sorrow and hurt when someone rebukes you. Paul rebuked them. They experienced that. They didn't like it at first. But you know what? God's Spirit worked on them. And as they were, they had been deepened into bitterness, resentment, they got past the hurt. The Spirit of God came in, did a work on them. And we see that that rebuke that Paul had rang true. They needed to change their ways. That is repentance. It's easily uh, said in a word picture walking one way, turning right back around and going back the way that you need to go. It's a turning. And, of course, in the Hebrew, we get that thought all through the Old Testament. It's a turning turning to God. So all of this, you know, he administered this kind of thing. There was some damage done there, what all was going on. But the godly sorrow is constructive. And there's good things that come out of this godly sorrow. That's what we've been discussing for the last 10 minutes here. It was painful to him. It was painful to them. But the result was what he was hoping for. I'm sure he prayed daily on this. It's like a surgeon. Surgeon has to go in, take his scalpel, and do some work that you ordinarily would not want done inside of your body. Now, hopefully, you have a surgeon that doesn't take real joy in saying, all right, this is what I live for. Look at this. You know, and start going for it, you know, and seeing blood gush out, you know. 
I would hope surgeons wouldn't have a great joy about having to go into bodies and do a work on the inside like that, your physical organs and, and those important parts that you have, and they're in there. You're trusting them as they do some cutting. But I would hope that they wouldn't take that kind of joy in it. But they know that it's going to take pain for you to be able to recover. And they'll tell you, for the next six weeks, eight weeks, here's what I want you to not do. Here's what I want you to do. And it's going to hurt. Oh, yeah, 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 I know about the pain pills. But it's still going to hurt. Anybody who's had surgery, I haven't had it. I've observed, and I've observed that uh, even with all those pain pills, people still hurt. Pain is still there. But it's on the way to recovery. Paul didn't enjoy the rebuke. He put the scalpel into him, didn't he? But he's plainly enjoying the results of this. A change of life in the Corinthians. Don't you know whenever it's said in verse 7 that, um, was it right at the end of it, I rejoiced even more? Then he uses it again in our text today. His rejoicing about all this. Wow. Paul really felt for them. In verse 9, as he talks about, you know, the, to the point of repentance and according to the will of God, this is the very intentions of God, His will, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. He said, I don't want you to suffer loss. And there's a couple of different ways to take this, and I think it can go with both. In order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. He's saying, there's so much that comes to you through us that has come from God. There's so much there that has come to you. I don't want you to lose any of it. All the blessings that comes out of it. If one went longer and longer with that before they had godly sorrow. Uh, you know, it's like the thing that really breaks my heart is God is working through me and he desires to work through me to you and into your life. And I don't want you to cut yourself off from the blessings that are there. I don't want to see that. I don't want you to see the blessings that you could have because of this overriding sin that's still there that's unconfessed. That's the way it is with all of our lives, not just the Corinthians. Whatever it is, we can lose blessings if we don't confess. You know, Paul is saying, hey, look, you've cut me off. You've turned your back on me. And God is working through me so that you would have truth that would help build you up. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15, something uh, very similar as far as the phrase goes. Suffer also. 3.15 If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. That's a difficult sounding verse, isn't it? And if you've always wondered what that is and don't know, he's talking about... Um, the judgment of God, the, the white throne judgment, based upon what we did here as Christians. He's not talking about a judgment seat of believers, unbelievers. But he's talking about believers here and what they have done here while they've been Christians, how they've served the Lord. It's the kind of building upon the foundation that he's talking about earlier. And he's talking about gold and, and silver, precious stones versus the wood, hay, and stubble. He says, I don't want your work to be wood, hay, and stubble because it burns up. It suffers loss. That means all the things that you did, it was really for your own glory. It wasn't for the glory of God. It was about you. And it's burned up. And so those particular rewards are not done. He says, you'll suffer loss 
or like I've always used before, it's like having a long robe and then to lose your rewards is like all of a sudden everybody else is in long robes and all of a sudden you're wearing a mini skirt. You see? <laughs> J. Vernon McGee, I think, is the one who made me abuse you on that one. You get the idea, suffering, loss. That's one thing. There's another thing, and it's talking about in the future. And of course, that, that's what that is there. The blessings in the past or, or right now in the present, and then there are blessings in the future, and it's the, that reward. So Second John, uh, verse 8 says, Look to yourselves that you lose not the things which you have wrought, but that you receive a full reward. I'm talking about loss of salvation there because that's impossible. If he's talking to believers, you cannot lose salvation, but you can lose your rewards. You say, hey, I don't care. I'm going to heaven anyway, and that's just great. Yeah, but you want to give God glory here and have all the capacity to give him even more glory in heaven. And that's the idea. There will be rewards. There will be more capacity to serve God in heaven. And it's not that you're going to be less than somebody, but don't you want the capacity to serve God in its fullest? And that's the thought there. So that's, and so it's based upon what we do here. So it does count what we do here. Our works don't save us, but they surely gain rewards for us that please God, that honor God, that glorify Him. Go to verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God, there we go again, that godly sorrow, the will of God's sorrow, produces a repentance. I like that. It produces it. It works in there so that there be production without regret, leading to salvation. And that can even be, you know, salvation, uh, faith, trusting in God for the first time. But it also can be just having well-being also, sozo. But it definitely has the power to lead. If you have repentance, it's so powerful. It brings one to new life in Christ, doesn't it? Born again. What kind of power is that? We sang about that earlier this morning, or we spoke about that. The power of God. The mighty power of God. Jesus saves, right? So verse 10 continues with a godly repentance. We said godly sorrow, godly repentance. It's the 10th verse there. The doctrine of repentance. I think that it has been said by many commentators, writers, theologians, teachers. This way may well be the best statement of repentance in the whole of the New Testament. Right where we're at. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. The sorrow of the world produces death. Let's look at this in action. Let's go back to Psalm 51. David committed a great sin. There are more sins than just a one sin. Led to, of course, his adultery and his murder involved. And, of course, with all that, it seems like everything else, the, the whole Ten Commandments are broken. You start with God himself, right? That's where the commandments start. In Psalm 51, let's just read this. This is where he writes this after he's been confronted by the prophet Nathan. Nathan brings to his mind the seriousness of his sin as David was wasting away for a year. Psalm 51 just a great illustration not only of David for all of us be gracious to me O God according to your loving kindness or your mercy according to the greatness of your compassion blot out my transgressions wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin for I know my transgressions do you see the three 
Great Hebrew words there for sin. Iniquity, sin, transgressions. Transgressions, to step over the bounds. To sin means to fall short of the glory of God. The iniquity, dealing with the wickedness and the turning your back on God and such. My sin is ever before me. Look at this in verse 4. Here's who he really sinned against, even though he did other things that actually was a sin against a whole nation. He says, against you, God, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Search me, know me, God. Show me where my sin is at. Turn the light on. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. He recognizes that he was born in his sin. Even before he got out of the womb, his nature is sin. He's a child of wrath, Ephesians 2 says. It's not because of what he will do, even though that's, that is the result of your nature. You will do sin. But his nature is already there. He's dead in his sins. I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin my mother conceived me. I was, in, I was a born sinner, as all men are. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. And in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Oh, Lord, take them. Take them from me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And sustain me with a willing spirit. Ongoing. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will be converted to you. You can take that sin that you've been involved with. You can go to other sinners and say, Hey man, you know, I see it. I get it. I know where you're at. But you know what? That's not good. You're in bondage. I want to tell you, I've been there, I know, but here's the fact. The bad news, you broke God's law. If you want to be delivered from that, God offers it. He can teach repentance, couldn't he? Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. You see where this has gone? From repenting of his sin to where he wants to praise God now, which is the ultimate thing we do, which is what we've been doing all morning. It's the best thing you can do while you live here on earth, that you can praise God. And it's even better when you can praise it with God's people. Right? And it's going to be even better when we get in the presence of God in heaven and praise God there which is what we will do. For you do not delight in the sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Is that what happened to David? Did he have a sorrow? Did he have a godly sorrow? Did he have a sorrow that was according to the will of God? A broken and a contrite heart. There's attrition. There's contrition. O God, you will not despise this contrite heart. By your favor, do good design. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. The whole purpose of God, the plan of God, now was before him as he confessed his sin and he ends up praising God and desiring to do the will of God in serving him and the whole nation as he led them. Wow. You know what? God answered because he prayed the kind of prayer that God wanted him to pray. 
Psalm 32. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Can anybody say that here? Let's say that together. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Amen. Because where would you be without that? David knew it. He knew it before this. Now he certainly knows it more than ever. Whose sin is covered. Our sin is covered by the blood. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Isn't this great promise? When we repent, this is what happens. And then whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Selah. Play the music there. I like it. Refrain. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. There you see sin. You see iniquity. You see transgressions. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly, that's us, pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way in which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice you righteous ones, rejoice and shout for joy. All you who are upright in heart, can you shout for joy when you realize you've been forgiven? And when you confess that, you realize it that much more. What a beauty it is. So what is repentance? Metanoia. Change of mind. Change of life. Turning from sin. Paul wept crocodile tears. I didn't have a sense of repentance at first. And then they came to godly sorrow. Repentance is not simply something that the sinner does for salvation. It's the life of believers. It's the character of the life of believers. Matter of fact, in some of the Eastern Bloc nations, they have a word for the believers or Christians there. They call themselves the repenters. The repenters. That's a mark of a Christian. For the unsaved individual, he has to repent, or else he'll never have salvation. For the Christian, he too repents to be restored to fellowship with God as we read there in Psalm 51, Psalm 32. So it's for the people outside of Christ. It's for the people that are in Christ. When Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis upon the Wittenberg castle door there, church door, very first of those theses was one about repentance. It's about what true repentance has to be characterized. Christian characterizes that he's Christian, that repentance. We should constantly be aware 
of the sin that we have, that we battle against, or to cut it off, or to starve it, or to choke it. John Owen often used the word mortify. I think in the King James it actually uses that word. It means to kill it. Do whatever it takes to kill that sin. So what do we say about repentance? It's produced by convincing knowledge. It starts with the mind. It's, the mind is not effectual itself, and the thinking about it that it's just sin, but it has to be accompanied by sorrow. Still yet, still not repentance until there is a changed life. Not just being sorrow for something, doing something. A change of mind that occurs as a result of sorrow. You have sorrow, you, you have a change of mind, a change of life. It's something that is given by God. If you look in Acts chapter 5, verse 31... My, we can't even repent on our own. Can't do anything on our own, can we? That's right. That's right. We're helpless, aren't we? Thirty-one, uh, verse thirty, Acts five thirty. The God of our fathers, and He's preaching here. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. You, you killed him. You put him to death on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. The death, burial, resurrection. God grants the repentance to the nation of Israel. We're witnesses of these things. So is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. Repentance was given to the nation of Israel. Go to chapter 11, verse 18. Later on, as the gospel spreads from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth, and by the time we get to chapter 11, verse 18, that's where we're at. Paul is defending the gospel. He's defending the grace, the message of grace. What does he preach? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. So sorrow leads to godly sorrow. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Repentance leads to life. To the Gentiles now. Spread not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. This message of grace. The gospel. Turn. You must turn. You must repent. What must we do to be saved in Acts 2? Peter says, repent. Never forgot that. The apostles preached it. We see it in the Gospels. We see it in the epistles. We see it through the early church. And then it was regained in the Reformation church. What true repentance was. I say that that's the true body of believers all the way up to our time. That's the message. Repent from your sins. You've offended God. You have broken the law. But because of the resurrected Jesus Christ, He has fulfilled the law. He can take your sin and put it on Him. He can take His righteousness and put it on you. Declare the gospel. Turn, and you will have a change of mind. A change of mind produces fruit. The fruit of repentance. John the Baptist preached repentance unto forgiveness of sins to bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. 
So we have to stress that. To recognize sin, and that's where it goes on all the way to the fruits. An awareness of being defiled and defying God. What He despises. What He adores. We see that. We see what it's done in His grieving for us. Confessing from the heart, I have sinned. True repentance springs from a sight and sense of sin. Truly seeing that. A clear sight. That's what the Westminster Confession uh, speaks of. It speaks from uh, being able to see spiritually, to be able to sense the sin, to have clear sight because of the consequences of sin. And John 16, 8 says that the Holy Spirit there convicts us of sin, right? Turn to John 16, 8. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does a lot of things. You know what the major thing is that the Holy Spirit does? What's he called? The Holy Spirit? It's to make us holy. And he'll do whatever it takes to make us holy. Because he is the Holy Spirit. Talking about when the Holy Spirit is going to be sent to the apostles, to the whole body of Christ. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin. Convict the world of sin. Convict the sinner of his sin. And of righteousness. That God is righteous. That man is a sinner. And judgment. There is judgment coming. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That message has to be spoken to the judgment of God. Because he will judge the sin. If we're not found in Christ, he will judge the sinner. They will pay for their sins forever in a burning, everlasting punishment called hell. We are to hate sin that does that to the unbeliever. G.I. Packer said, true repentance only begins when one passes out of what the Bible sees as self-deception. We deceive ourselves. The Holy Spirit comes in and shows that's sin. To what the Bible calls conviction of sin. Of course, we just read our John 16, 8. Confession by itself is not repentance. We can confess all we want. Confession moves the lips, though. Repentance moves the Jim Elleth, Reformed Baptist, says, Naming an act as evil before God is not the same as leaving it. Though your confession may be honest and emotional, it is not, a lot, uh, not enough unless it expresses a true change of heart. There are those who confess only for the show of it, whose so-called repentance may be theatrical, but not actual. It's talking about hating Sin. Sin causes us to loathe ourselves, to abhor ourselves. We can see consequences of it. But it goes even further, as we saw in Psalm 51, about David. Westminster Confession says, Every man's duty is to endeavor to repent of particular sins particularly. Particular, go to the particular sins. It's not trying to go back in your life and try to confess every sin that you've ever done because that is impossible. But start with what the Holy Spirit is convicting you with and take that particular sin, confess it, repent. Matter of fact, the longer we go, only intensifies it, increases it longer, Packer says. It says the pain does not diminish it deepens. It's in fact a law of the spiritual life that the further you go, the more you are aware of the distance still to be covered. Your growing desire for God makes you increasingly conscious, not so much of where you are in your relationship with Him as of where as yet you are not. 
Wow. This is for all of us, isn't it? Godly repentance produces fruit. Recognizing the sin. Being remorseful for it. Requesting to God forgiveness, even though you know your sins have been paid for. There's another sense of your present tense sin still hanging with you. Pray for, you know, in the sense of that, thank you, Lord, for forgiving me at the same time. I confess this sin. Uh, I agree with you that this is sin. Lord, I repent of this. I desire your forgiveness in our relationship here. Strength. You pray for strength. Remember David praying for strength in Psalm 51? So it affected him spiritually and mentally and physically, every way. Repudiating it. Avoid the stumbling. Resolving to turn away from sin. Psalm 139, verse 23. Psalm 139, God knows where we're at always. It's about His omniscience, His omnipresence. Oh, Lord, You search me and know me. You know when I sit down, when I raise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. Everything that we think, everywhere we're at, He knows. Get into verse 23. We sang this song this morning. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. Show me, Lord. See if there be any hurtful way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. Resolving to turn away from sin. Henry Smith said this, The wicked do but weep for their sins past, but the godly purpose to sin no more. Even though we will, you desire not to sin anymore. That's what you're repenting about. And then there's, so there should be reformation in yourselves. Semper reformandi, always reforming. Reforming to truth. Pursuing purity. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you Thessalonians, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Turning to false God, from false gods to the living, the true God. Pursuing Him. Pursuing purity. We close here. This entire passage, this account that we have dealt with here this morning illuminates our problem that we still battle with sin. The nature of what sin does and destroys. But the nature of true repentance. Now can you see it as a good thing? It's a gift, isn't it? It should characterize us more and more. It should be constantly in our lives. We sin as believers. We sin before God. Corinthians illustrated beautifully, I think, here of uh, a real repentance that happened. They recognized that they wronged God. They wronged Paul. They were actually indignant at themselves the way that they'd acted before. It's well to remember what uh, one of uh, our old Puritans said. This applies to us as believers. By delay of repentance, sin strengthens and heart hardens. The longer ice freezes, the harder it is to be broken. We see that in the lives of so many believing people through the years. Failure to repent has led to hardness of heart. The longer we persist in sin is not repenting. Seeing our sin in the light of God Puritan says, the harder our Christian hearts become. May God deliver us from that. So, 
it is an act that we do based upon what is in our hearts. Not a one-time thing, but it's an ongoing thing. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for that great gift. Let's go to our great God in prayer. Father, you are holy. We recognize that we as believers have the righteousness of Christ. We have forgiveness of sins, salvation, eternal life. But yet we have a practical life to live. We want it to honor you in everything that we do. We are sorry. We come to you confessing particular sins, whatever those may be. We can certainly do it here as we pray individually, as we are praying publicly. We bring those to you knowing that the Holy Spirit can give us a godly sorrow, sorrow that's according to the will of God, that brings in a true repentance, the fruits that go with that. Thank you for, so much for this passage because we see that Paul rejoiced because it's a great thing when we defeat sin. We are triumphant because of what Christ has done. Our works mean nothing as far as our salvation. But Christ's work has been done. And that's the reason that we can do the things that God tells us to do. It is a great blessing. Thank you. May we recognize this morning that we have been blessed by your word as the Holy Spirit makes an effect on each one of our hearts. As we walk out of here, may we not spill this truth out, but that it would work on our hearts all through the week, through the rest of our lives till Christ comes back, where one day we'll have every sin stripped away from us as we will live in glory. Thank you for that news, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, we thank you once again for joining us. We pray that this message would serve to edify you. And we say goodbye until next time. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. Till next time.